from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Let me put two things into your head, shrink rays and snow skiing. What do those two ideas have to do with one another? Well, we're about to find out. The nanotechnologist and the environmental social scientist coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, we bring together two researchers working in widely different fields. I spend a little time talking to each one of them, and then I get to introduce them to one another. And then really cool things happen. Questions that I would never have thought to ask get asked, and connections get made, and sometimes we even create new friendships. It's pretty cool. Joining us by phone from the University of Texas at Austin is Jason Shear whose recent article in the Journal of the American Chemical Society describes the development of a process by which we can change the size and the shape of a cell culture. He's a longtime distance runner who's the winner of the 2015 Brazos Bend 50-mile race, and he's a hobby sculptor who makes some really creepy monsters. Hey, Jason, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Also joining us is Jordan Smith. His recent study in the journal Sustainability demonstrates that bad air days in Utah's valleys are pushing more people and more cars into areas of the state that have good air. He's the director of the Institute of Outdoor Recreation and Tourism at Utah State University, and he's also an endurance athlete with multiple triathlons and an ultramarathon under his belt. Jordan, welcome to Undisciplined. Thanks, Matthew. First up today, the nanotechnologist. Diane, I got something real important to tell you. Are you trying to tell me the machine works? Do the kids know? Well, yeah, the kids know. That's great. It's not that great. Why? I shrunk the kids and the Thompson kids too. They're about this big. Threw them out with the trash. What? They're in the backyard. That, of course, is the trailer from the 1989 movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, in which Rick Moranis plays a professor who has developed a shrink ray. It's been almost 30 years, and we're no closer to a world in which we can send our kids on epic adventures across the backyard lawn. But my first guest has developed a shrink ray, yep, a shrink ray, that works on cell cultures, a near-infrared laser that can dynamically reshape the substances on which cells are studied in the lab. Jason Shear, before we get to how you did this, let's chat about why you did this. In lab settings, cells are usually grown on a gelatinous material called a substrate. Why would we want to be able to rapidly change the size and the shape of a substrate? So when cells grow and differentiate in the body, they encounter environments that are typically highly varied. They experience mechanical and topographical cues from the materials that they're adhered to. In the best cases, cells are grown on on biological materials like gels. More historically, people have cultured cells on hard, planar surfaces like pieces of glass or plastic. And you can imagine that these sort of environments are not very similar to the environments that cells encounter in the body. People have tried to develop materials that better approximate or mimic in certain ways biological materials like like gels. Traditionally, materials like gels have been shaped perhaps ahead of time to have certain features that cells are known to interact with in particular ways. Grooves will cause some cells to migrate. They'll cause other cells to elongate. The, the interesting thing is that biological materials tend not to be constant. They are changing over time. 
And unfortunately, in cell cultures, the ability to alter the substrate really hasn't existed. So that's where we wanted to try to add some technology to the mix and see if we could develop ways to alter the substrate on which cells are growing while still maintaining adherence and not disrupting or damaging the cells. Okay, and this is all part of work you've been doing, well, like for a decade now, on figuring out how to print 3D biological materials at a very microscopic scale, right? That's right, yeah. So, you know, when when I started um, at the University of Texas, uh, people were, you know, for the most part, still largely culturing cells on, on things like cover slips, and certainly my lab was doing a lot of that. One area that I've had particular interest in over the years is neuroscience. So I would try to form connections with with neurobiologists and would come to them with some of the tools that we were developing, say, hey, you know, look, we can measure these chemicals from cells cultured on a piece of glass, and uh, what do you think of that? Do you have you know questions that we might help address? Were they immediately no. excited about that, or did it take some convincing to get them to recognize how important that was? They were not thrilled by the requirements that, that we had at the time, which was to culture cells on these hard two-dimensional surfaces. So that really motivated us to start thinking about um, ways to try to develop these very high-resolution microscopic 3D printing techniques. And then you wanted to make this dynamic. So, of course, you want to make something dynamic. What do you do? You get a laser, and you point it at the part of the substrate that you want to change, and then zap. So tell me what's happening within the substrate when this is happening. Uh, We make our substrates by using a laser to scan through a protein solution, and that causes the protein molecules to form uh, chemical bonds and uh, and develop into this hydrogel. At that point, we can grow cells on it, but it turns out that the hydrogels themselves can continue to undergo additional chemical cross-linking if we expose the material with a laser after we've uh, cultured cells on top. So this additional chemical cross-linking actually causes the material to tighten and form contraction regions but only where we focus our laser beam, which is inside of the material. And that way we avoid exposing the cells to tightly focused laser light can uh, affect the, the, the topography or the shape of the surface without damaging the cells. And this is why we call this a shrink ray. And I know like where I've seen that, it's been in quotes, but it, it tightens up this material so that it actually, well, it, it shrinks, right? It, yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, we can take uh, an array of, you know, if we want to just demonstrate this capability, take a, uh, an array of posts or pads and go in and specifically target these, these different objects can cause volume changes of five to ten fold. So you've got these now little objects interspersed among the big ones. It, it really is shrinking the objects and it can be directed in, in, a, in a targeted way. And importantly, and you just touched on this a little bit, that doesn't affect the cells, right? It doesn't heat them up. It doesn't radiate them. Yeah, that's that's correct. So by using a near-infrared laser, where the laser light itself um, at low intensity doesn't damage the cells, isn't absorbed, 
by the cells to, to cause heating or chemical damage. We can restrict where this shrinking occurs to a region only where the intensity is the very highest, which is right at the focal point of the laser. As long as we keep that focal point inside the material and not inside the cell, which is on top of the material, we avoid the damage. And what sorts of patterns and formations can you make with the laser? I imagine you get a little creative. You know, your imagination is your guide. Uh, there are certain types of features that would be more challenging. We easily can make grooves and ridges. We can make um, circular patterns. We can make uh, hills or little mountains. So a lot of different, a lot of different objects. Some things that would be more difficult is uh, if you wanted to think about making surface features with, for example, an overhang might be difficult. I imagine that when you look at these topographical changes under the microscope, it's pretty amazing. What was it like when you first saw the transformation occur? It's one of those um, making lemonade out of lemons uh, sorts of discoveries. We had been uh, developing these hydrogel pads to grow cells on and using a laser beam after we made the pads to uh, chemically attach other molecules to the surface. So we wanted to add patterns of chemicals that cells might interact with that, uh, and the, the attachment of these chemicals was promoted using a laser beam. What we found was when we did that, we would get features we didn't want. We would see the surface create little bumps and ridges where our laser had been. And that was uh, somewhat upsetting because we, we realized that it would be difficult to study the effects of the chemicals we were attaching if there were also physical features that might alter the behavior of cells. Uh, and when we started thinking about it, we realized that this, in fact, might be able to be used to specifically create physical features that we wanted to examine. Uh, the effects on cells. So when you design something like this, I assume you want to put it to work. You probably want to put it to work quickly. What is it being used for so far, and what are the next steps? So we, uh, we as you mentioned, have a, a paper that just came out in uh, the Journal of American Chemical Society. Uh, we've completed another study starting to look at the ability to, to use uh, this tool to align uh, and elongate cells in culture that have already attached to a surface. Uh, that, so we've sent out another report on that, and it's really, at this stage, has been an assessment of what can the tool do. We are now looking forward to trying to look at the use of the tool in a variety of different contexts. One of them is to, to see how we're able to alter the growth of neurons that are growing on a, a surface that's initially flat, looking at how bacteria uh, interact with each other in very small volumes. And uh, one thing that bacteria like to do on surfaces, as a lot of people uh, uh, know when they go to the dentist, is to form biofilms. So they're interacting uh, with a surface and creating a different community. There has been a lot of Initial interesting work looking at how surface topography or surface shape can affect the ability of cells, uh, bacteria, to form these biofilms. And we have uh, existing interest in trying to alter that as, 
as the uh, biofilm community is developing and growing. So those are those are two main areas right now that, that we have some interest in. That's Jason Shear, whose recent article in the Journal of the American Chemical Society demonstrates how if you don't think the materials on which your cell cultures are growing just right, the answer might be to build a shrink ray. Jason, can you stick around to chat with our next guest? Absolutely. Next up, the environmental social scientist. That ominously soundtracked clip comes from the 1967 documentary Beware the Wind. The population of the United States has increased by a third in the year since that film was made, but the number of cars has increased by more than 300%. That's just one of many reasons why, despite some major efforts to control air pollution, we're still choking on smog. One of the nation's worst locations for smog is Utah, where valleys surrounded by tall mountains trap pollutants in weather conditions known as inversions, which are particularly strong in the winter. Those same mountains, of course, are why Utah can claim to have the greatest snow on Earth, and Jordan Smith wanted to know whether bad air pushes people to escape into two of the region's most popular ski canyons. Jordan Smith, you've spent a lot of your life in Utah and plenty of it in the spaces that make it such a special place for outdoor recreation. When did you start thinking about the connection between pollution and crowds in the canyons? Anecdotally, we know from you know our own experiences on a day-to-day level that the factors that drive us outside often have to do with, with what we're trying to get away from. We have a lot of research you know, that shows that the Conditions at a recreation setting are do influence visitation. That you know, you provide services, you provide amenities, you have great snow depth, you have great snow conditions. Those are the factors that really attract people to come to uh, outdoor recreation destinations, particularly winter outdoor recreation destinations here in the state. When air conditions do get terrible um, in the cities, people escape to higher higher locations. But we really didn't have any strong empirical data to to show this relationship. So this study was really the the first branch in in trying to to see whether or not that was actually the case and really to try to weigh out the differences and what was the the main factor in influencing individuals' travel decisions. Is it the the air conditions, the poor air quality, the poor environmental conditions at their home locations, or is it the positive or the highly desirable conditions at the recreation destination itself? So I think anybody who lives in one of these areas kind of recognizes this. Like you say, anecdotally, you see the weather get really bad. You see the pollution start to mount up and you see people start to escape into these recreational areas. But how did you go about then studying the connection between air quality and canyon activity? It is something that people who have grown up in the Intermountain region in basically any portion of the western U.S. know that when these locations that do suffer from inversions, when they do get really bad, people want to go, want to go out and want to get up. But we don't really know whether or not that's the main factor influencing their, their travel decisions. And so this study, we really wanted to kind of pit these traditional characteristics that we look at to drive out to recreation behavior, you know, snow depth, uh, snowfall, uh, temperature. These are all these characteristics that we look at and we have been looking at for, for decades. But we often just look at those characteristics at the setting itself. So we don't really know like, w- whether or not the ca- characteristics at the setting itself are the primary reason that individuals want to go to those, those destinations. And when we put both of these characteristics in, into the same, same um, analytical model, 
which one is actually the primary reason that's influencing people's decisions, which one has a stronger effect on individuals' behavior. And that's the, the most surprising thing that came out of this study is that air quality was by far the most significant influence on winter outdoor recreation behavior on the canyons above Salt Lake City. Much more so than great powder days, much more snow than the cooler temperatures. Didn't have anything to do with that, actually, the characteristics of the canyons themselves. It was just the, the terrible conditions um, in the city. So even in the place that bills itself as having the greatest snow on earth, on the greatest snow days or the greatest snow on earth, we're still talking about a, a push effect from the valleys, from the pollution in the valleys, that is more substantial than the pull effect of mountains and mountains of fluffy white snow. Yeah, we do have some outstanding snow and we do have some, some great snow years. Um, but unfortunately, uh, what influences people's decisions more is really the characteristics of where they spend most of their time. And, and most people obviously spend most of their time indoors and around locations where they live. And when those conditions get degraded, people want to you know seek better opportunities. And often those, when you're here in the Intermountain West, those opportunities are at higher elevations. The result of this is that areas that we're fleeing to for better air are getting more car traffic. People are adding to the bad air by fleeing the bad air. There's a bit of a sad irony there. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's kind of you know, interesting to note that there's a lot of dynamic factors that are involved in, in outdoor recreation uh, visitation at winter, winter destinations. The focus of much of the research so far and much, a lot of my research has been on how climate change affects visitation to these de- destinations. We know that you know, increasing temperatures, more variable precipitation rates in the future are projected to reduce snowpack. Um, and uh, as a result, we expect you know, there's going to be less winter outdoor recreation opportunities, less visitation to these areas. At the same time, the air quality in nearby urban centers is getting worse and worse, and that's driving more and more people up. So there's kind of a, a balance here. There's a unique dynamic where the winter conditions in the canyons themselves at these winter destinations themselves is deteriorating, which results in a reduction in visitation, but also the characteristics of the, the nearby urban centers is deteriorating potentially in a more rapid rate, which results in even more people visiting those, those canyons. So there's a lot of dynamics going on, a lot of these push-pull uh, dynamics going on of what influences uh, where individuals actually choose to go. I can think of a lot of directions where this research could go. I imagine there's a push-pull effect for home buyers when they're making decisions about where they're going to live. I imagine there's a push-pull effect for people making decisions about where they're going to stay when they're visiting or whether they come and visit Utah at all. What are the next questions you'd like to answer? Right now, this was the the first you know kind of look at these small-scale um, extreme conditions that influence individuals' behavior. We have a lot of research that shows that there's long-term effects on climatic conditions on individuals' uh, travel de- travel decisions and where they choose to go. But we don't really know how short-term effects, you know, extreme heat events, heat waves, affect individuals' travel behavior on, on a very short temporal scale. So what we're trying to do now is scale back and look at the influence of extreme weather events. Um, how do those small-scale, very focused events influence individuals' travel behavior? That's Jordan Smith, whose most recent study in the journal Sustainability reveals that the nastier the air gets in the Salt Lake Valley, the busier the resorts get in some of Utah's most famous ski canyons. Jordan, want to stick around and chat with our first guest? Yeah, definitely. Well then, Jordan, this is nanotechnologist Jason Shear, And Jason, this is environmental social scientist Jordan Smith. Good to meet you, Jordan. <laughs> Great to meet you too, Jason. Jason, I might be stretching things here a bit, but you create topography at a microscopic scale. 
And Jordan, you study the ways people use topography in their lives. And I guess what I'm trying to get out here is this idea that I think a lot of us tend to think about what different organisms do in a bit of a vacuum. We might think about what they eat. We might think about what they breathe. But the geography around us is a really powerful force on our behavior. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. When Jason was talking, he was mentioning mechanical and topographic cues for cells and where they where they move and how they how they grow. That might be a direct connection to thinking about, you know, how people actually move and, and where they go. Uh, we know that different types of recreationists have different responses to constraints and to barriers that they that they face when they try to participate in outdoor recreation. So in many ways, maybe maybe there's um, some sort of deep connection there in the way that cells respond to different topographical structures and the way that people respond to different characteristics uh, in their natural environment. Absolutely, Jordan. And, you know, and while you were talking, it really struck me that it's not much of a stretch to represent the effects on cells that are migrating or extending part of their cell body as really being a, a push and a pull. And it's known, for example, that a variety of cell types have chemoattractants and also repellents, things that tell them, you know, not, not to come over here. And likewise, there are physical features, there are topographic features that guide cells in certain directions and others that prevent the cells from continuing along a, a certain pathway. So in many different circumstances, many different contexts, this idea of push and pull is something that has to be considered sort of as an aggregate effect. Yeah, Jason, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about kind of the, the long-term implications uh, of your work and, and how they might, you know, relate to, to outdoor recreation and, uh, and basically people's use uh, in the outdoors. Are you thinking about the, the long-term applications for, you know, maybe using this technology for focused regrowth of cells um, that could potentially be used in, uh, for individuals who have injuries um, or who are who are getting treated for, for injuries that, that do happen outside? Absolutely. We have a lot of interest in things like wounds. A lot of that interest historically has been thinking about chronic infections. So some of the bacteria that we study pick up residents in wounds and they interact in complex ways with multiple species of bacteria. With some of the, the newer technology that we uh, describe in this current paper, uh, we certainly are thinking about as wounds heal and you have cells that start to form a dealing wound, how do you potentially guide the cells in a way that might avoid scarring? Nerve regrowth is a very important context as well. I think there's, there's just, as, as you say, a very broad range of problems that we could start looking at with the tool. You know, you both spend a lot of your time outside, and I'm wondering, like, is it hard knowing how topography impacts cells and knowing how topography impacts other human beings to ignore the idea that your life personally is very much dictated by the things that are around you that, that guide and direct you and keep you from moving to, from one place to another and keep you moving from one place to another? That's completely true, and that's it might be true from everything from cells to to human beings to families to cultures to entire societies. You know, a perfect example of this is uh, three years ago when I moved to Utah. It was from the Central Piedmont in North Carolina, and the whole reason for that move was because I wanted to be in a place that was uh, more geographically interesting. 
So I think topography, you know, geographic variation of a location influences obviously everything from how cells grow, as Jason work kind of builds on, uh, to how people move and their route to recreation decisions. Uh, and we also know from kind of our per- personal life experiences to where we want to, where we move and where we settle and where we, where we uh, build family and where we, the communities that we choose to be a part of. Well put. And, you know, I, I do think the, the question of, of how people de- decide what to do in their lives and how societies move these generally uh, have a lot to do uh, with barriers and what stands in the way of being here and getting there. And uh, we, a lot of times we can agree that we should be over there, but there's, there's not a clear pathway uh, to get over, over these barriers. So, you know, from a more conceptual standpoint, that, that represents topography. You try to find your route and you try to find your, your mountain pass. So I do think it's it's uh, a bit of a truism. Jason Jordan just used the words more interesting topography. Um, are cells drawn to more interesting topography? Do you think? That's a very interesting question. I you know I'm not sure how my concept of interesting might map onto a cell's concept of interesting. What a cell we consider interesting is a, maybe a, a a deeper philosophical question. Maybe a study for another day. We're just about out of time. Jason Shear, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks, Matthew. Enjoyed it a lot. And Jordan Smith, thank you. Great. Thanks, Matthew. like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>